This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sunny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. Well, the title of the album is High and Dry. The, why the album is called High and Dry, I have no clue, really. We we had a song called High and Dry, um, which got worked. We kept the title, but we kind of put a bracket Saturday night after it and, and turned it round on itself because originally on the demo, I think I was just singing High and Dry and some other line. And then we turned it around to Saturday night, High and Dry. Um I don't know. It was just one of those things that stuck. It wasn't anything specific. It just, it was nothing that we put a great deal of uh, thought into, to be quite honest. Um, it just, once we got kind of started on the record and, and we just mentioned, somebody said, you know, call the album mind dry. Nobody really argued with them. So I don't even know where it came from. I'm not suggesting for a second it was my idea. It could have been anybody's. It just ended up being called high and dry. Sonny, it's February, which means that we've come upon the second studio album release from British rockers Def Leppard. And that brings us to High and Dry, which I think this album, considered by a lot of people, at least the hardcore rock and rollers, the hardcore metal fans, to be their favorite album. I don't know if I feel that way. I'm not sure how you feel, but we're going to get into all this. And just like all the rest of the episodes, we got to bring a special guest. And returning to the show is none other than Tony Musalam from Restrain. Tony, what's going on? How are you guys doing? Good to be back with you guys. See, I was going to tell the listeners that before we started recording, Stephen goes one, two, three to check the mic. But I think he stopped at three because he doesn't know how to count any further. Now, who's responsible? I say, who's responsible for this unwarranted attack on my person? That's not true. <laughs> I got all my toes and fingers exposed. Therefore, I can count to 20. Yeah, he can count to 17. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let the shit begin. That's all right. I'll take shit from you guys. It's just a warm-up as we record this before we jump on the Monsters of Rock cruise. I have no problem getting shit and dealing it out. And it'll be my pleasure to deal it out to the two of you for a week long. I believe the saying is dish it out, but okay, we'll go with deal it. <laughs> I think there's a dish involved also. <laughs> Might be dishes, maybe dealing. Who knows? You know, I think the last person who said dealing was like Ozzy Harriet. Uh, I, I think it just shows the age. <laughs> Here we are with the age thing. And we again. might be sitting on it too. Cause I think that shows the age sitting on what? I don't know. You're the people that said it. Hey, mister, don't call that dog life saver. No, call him shithead. <laughs> All right, let's get into this <laughs> album review before we get too far off track here. So, Tony, what's your uh, history with Def Leppard in general in this album? So, my history with Def Leppard, uh, as we probably, I think, discussed way back on episode 9 or 10, whatever the one that I was on way back in the beginning, Pyromania was the first rock cassette that I bought with my own money. 
So that's pretty much where I started. It was uh, after seeing photograph mm-hmm. on, uh, well, the video for photograph. I was in Saudi Arabia, so I really didn't have access to radio or MTV or anything like that. So I got it on a VHS tape, and that's when I first heard Def Leppard, and I went and bought Pyromania. After I got Pyromania, I loved it. So I started going backwards a little bit, and I remember seeing those videos for bringing on heartbreak and, and things like that, all those live shot videos. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up getting high and dry. Yeah, it's funny. I think a lot of the stories are fairly similar with most in our kind of age bracket because it was the same for me. I came in on Pyromania, went backwards to high and dry and and on through the night. Sonny, you're the same thing, right? You came in with uh, Pyromania on uh, MTV, right? Yeah, yep, Absolutely. I mean, we definitely were not in on the ground floor uh, with this band, at least a lot of the people that I know as well, sort of the same story. Well, you know, before we go track by track and get into the high and dry record, you know, we got to do this. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. All right, so tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. We always like to do one of these when we have a guest on who has something to play us, and this is no exception. Tony, uh, from Restrained, I understand you have some new music that the band's been working on. What are you going to share with us tonight? Yeah, so uh, during lockdown, we have been working on some new music. Uh, We've got about five songs pretty much done. We're working on just tweaking the mastering and the and the mix and stuff like that. So I do want to share a song called I Walk Alone. It's my favorite of the new tunes. Uh, it's Johnny's favorite as well. He wrote the music. I wrote the lyrics and the melody. And um, I do the uh, the main solos and things like that. Johnny did the intro solo. I think it's funny because when I've let people hear it, they say, oh, it's really different for you guys. But I guess me, I'm too close to it and I don't realize that it's different. I think it just feels like what we originally were listening to way back in the mid-80s to me. But hopefully it doesn't sound dated. (laughs) Now, when you say different, what do you mean? I don't know. Everybody says, oh, that's kind of different for you guys. And I was like, is it? (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know what's different, honestly. I don't know. Maybe it's because it has a little bit more of a, I don't know, a groove or something. I don't know. I don't know. Sonny, do you have any clue what's different? (laughs) Yeah, it's a little more, it's a smoother not punch in your face type stuff you guys do sometimes. And it's mm. a little bit of the chugging riff that sometimes creates this punch when Johnny comes in with a vocal. This is just a little bit on the smoother side, has a little more polish to it. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I've listened to it because uh, you sent it to me a couple of times mm-hmm. in different stages. Mm-hmm. So it kind of got smoothed out over time because it had punch before. I like it that it's a little more smooth out, but that's what's different to me. Got it. This is I Walk Alone, the new one from Restrain. Check it out.
And of course, Tony has learned nothing from Terry Glaze. You're supposed to give us your least favorite. First. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny because I heard that and I was like, that's an interesting concept, but no. <laughs> so here was my take on I Walk Alone and where I think maybe somebody is saying different. We played a lot of Restrained over the course of this podcast, going all the way back to, like you said, Tony, episode nine, I think, uh, was the first one that you came on the show. And you've been on many times since then. And we've covered, I guess, three albums at this point of Restrained. I think so. And various different songs from those three albums have, have been here. And if you're new to the show... A lot of times we play a little transition music in between segments that's restrained. And so I think at the very beginning of restrained, to me anyway, I'm just sharing my personal opinion. The band was phasing in and out of seriously heavy to more polished melodic hard rock. So the first two albums for me were kind of in and out of that that genre where it was very heavy at times and a little bit more polished at times. To me, I Walk Alone sounds like you guys have sort of maybe found, and I haven't heard any of the other stuff, but this song in particular seems like maybe you guys have found a little bit of a niche and your songwriting has become a little bit more crafted over the course of the three albums. And it sounds really good to me. I mean, this is definitely in my bank zone of rock and roll. I like it a lot. So that's just my personal opinion of this particular song. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. I mean, I think I, I agree with you in, in a way. I, we certainly were heavier. And I think it was a conscious effort to be heavier because we didn't want to sound dated or anything like that. But as we progressed as songwriters and performers, I think it's gotten to a point where it's like, why force something? Just let it flow naturally and, and see what happens. And this is the kind of stuff that naturally comes out when Johnny and I write. It just is. It's what we grew up listening to and it's what we love. So I guess it's finally starting to translate <laughs> in the music. So hopefully everybody likes it. I don't know. Well, and I think part of it is the imagery, right? The imagery of the first uh, three album covers is is much more, you know, would seem like it would come from like a much heavier band. And so maybe that may be part of it, right? Yeah, I agree. And I, I actually, I think the the cover for God of War, the last record, I don't think it fits the content in the record to me. I don't think it's as aggressive as the album cover is. But I think that, you know, the cover, the artist, she did a great job, but it, it was based on the one song and not really what the rest of the album was about. Probably, we don't know what this next record's going to look like because we have no idea when we're going to release it. Quite honestly, this is literally a total sneak peek and we have no idea this might not be out for another eight months. So we don't know what the album cover is going to look like. We don't even have a title yet. So, um, but I think I'm going to definitely be pushing to get away from the heavy dark imagery. Yeah. You know, have it a little bit reflect more the content of what the actual songs are about. We've kind of gone from, you know, end of the world stuff to like talking about love and stuff. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely different. Well, and I think, listen, I think we can definitely talk Sonny into wearing that tutu on the album cover that we've been looking for. And that oh, might yeah. help smooth out the imagery, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. That'll smooth it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> na na naked Sonny with a tutu. I love it. Yep. Perfect. That it's sold. It's going to look like a bear. Don't worry. It's me. 
<laughs> yeah, he looks like he's wearing a fur sweater. But uh. <laughs> oh my god, I can't ever unsee that in my head. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, looks like the bear at the circus. Yeah, <laughs> just got to get you on a tricycle and we'll be set. Oh, look, Big Ben's doing tricks. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're asking yourself, and the answer is yes. I have a nickname for my penis. It's called the Octagon, but I also nickname my testes. My left one is James Westfall, and my right one is Dr. Kenneth Noisewater. You ladies play your cards right, you just might get to meet the whole gang. And with that, we get into tonight's discussion. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. All right, so we're here to talk about High and Dry from Def Leppard, the second studio album released. It was released on July 6th, 1981. The album was recorded between March and June of 81. So according to Joe Elliott, they started recording this album late, like literally six months late, because they were waiting on Mutt Lang, the producer, to finish up Foreigner 4 at the time. And Joe Elliott talked about how he had to go and work construction while he was waiting for them to record this record uh, because he didn't have any money. He was talking about at the time they had charting records with on through the night and everything, but they still, you know, they were just like anybody else. They had to go work a day job just to pay the bills. He talked about how he was literally finishing up vocals on the High and Dry album while the other band was already on their way to Germany to meet up with Rainbow for the UK tour. The first show for that tour, they opened with Switch 625 because they were killing time because he wasn't ready to get uh, on stage yet. So that's how they opened the show, which was kind of weird. The studio, they recorded it in London, England. The length of the record's 42 minutes and 15 seconds long. The label is Vertigo in the UK and Mercury in the USA. Hey, do you guys remember whenever you had like Polygram or Mercury cassette tapes, they always stuck out in your cassette tape box because they were the only cassettes that were like had those blonde cases, those uh, kind of light beige cases. Do you remember that at all? Yeah, the tan case. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because I had all, all the Kiss stuff, and it had all that. That's right. The Kiss stuff, the Bon Jovi stuff, and my Scorpion stuff was all beige. Producer was Robert John Mutlang. The album was certified double platinum in 1992, and the peak position on the 200 albums chart was number 38. That's where this record peaked at, I'm sure, driven by bringing on the heartbreak. So let's talk a little bit about the album cover here. Listen to this as Joe Elliott talks a little bit about the album cover. Well, once we'd started recording the album, and we this is our first album with Mort Lang, remember, we were kind of in a mindset to kind of notch up a gear from the previous album. We had no input whatsoever into the artwork of On Through the Night. It was just delivered to us, this like drawing of a truck driving past the moon, which, to be quite honest, we all thought was a bit ridiculous. But then, you know, we started working with this top-notch producer called Mutt Lang, and we started to feel our way into being in this band a little bit more and, and decided that we wanted to work with a, a name art guy, uh, notably Hypnosis, who'd done all these sleeves that we grew up looking at all our teenage years, from Pink Floyd to Led Zeppelin to UFO. I mean, the Hypnosis sleeves were everywhere, and we really, really wanted to work with Hypnosis, and we didn't really get much of an argument from 
from the record label. And in fact, Peter Mensch, who was managing the band at the time, was quite vocal in our favor that we should work with uh, hypnosis. So we got to work with a guy called Storm Thurgson, who sadly passed away a few years ago. But um, he was the guy that came up with the idea. And we just basically looked at a bunch of designs that he'd kind of come up with and what they do these guys they're just constantly working and they just show an artist maybe 10 or 12 sleeves and they pick one i you know i've heard many rumors that high and dry was a i think it was a reject of umma gumma by pink floyd but it worked great for us you know high and dry there was like this empty swimming pool it was all a kind of tongue-in-cheek humorous kind of nod towards that really but that's the way it goes there's this hundreds of stories through the history of rock and roll of album sleeves that are iconic once they get used but somebody says oh i turned that down 10 years ago and i that's the story that we heard about the sleeve was that it was rejected by pink floyd for the umma gummer album but we kind of we we dug it so as you heard joe elliott mention the album cover they were told that the album cover was a reject from pink floyd's umaguma omagama album i don't know i'm not a big fan of pink floyd but originally this album cover was rejected from them for this particular album. Hypnosis was an English art design group based in London that specialized in creating cover art for the albums of rock musicians and bands. The firm notably commissioned work for Pink Floyd, T-Rex, Black Sabbath, UFO, 10CC, Bad Company, Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Scorpions, Genesis, Peter Gabriel, Rainbow and Sticks. So they worked with a ton of different bands. Apparently, this was like the rage back in uh, the early 80s was to have these hypnotic album covers. You know, I don't know. What do you think of this album cover? Because I'm not a big fan of this album cover. Sonny, what do you think? Reject basically explains it, <laughs> period. <laughs> it looks like a reject because I don't get the whole bunch of people looking up and a guy diving into a pool with no water like i don't understand it i guess you got to be a pink floyd fan to understand it but even those guys rejected it i would just throw it in the garbage can and did something else well i get the pool with no water and the guy diving high and dry i mean that mm-hmm. makes sense to me i just don't like maybe if the album cover was just the the guy diving into a pool with no water and all the people around the side weren't there maybe it would be a little bit make more sense and be a little bit better but i don't like that whole thing tony what's what's your thoughts on this album cover no it's it's bad like you said you get it you know high and dry it's a little on the nose if you ask me mm-hmm. and i don't know it, this one's never done anything for me N- never it, it i don't know i guess you're trying to be artsy sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but like like sunny said reject says it all yeah, I don't know too much about this hypnosis thing of the album covers. I know that Pink Floyd had a lot of funky covers. And this firm, I mean, they were pretty popular at one point in time. The firm was owned by this guy named Storm Thurgerson and Aubrey Powell. The group dissolved in 83, though Thurgerson worked on album designs till his death in 2013. Powell's worked with Paul McCartney, The Who. He does video production for uh, Pink Floyd. So, I mean, these guys had a pretty successful career, but I don't get that whole... And maybe I would like some of their other album covers, but the whole hypnosis thing, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I think the other difference is you're talking about bands that were established, right? So now I already know what Pink Floyd sounds like. I already know what the Who sounds like. 
So maybe the album cover makes sense to me. These guys are rookies. If you're looking for a fan to give them a chance based on the album cover, this ain't going to do it. Uh, Yeah, definitely. It's strange for sure. Okay, so getting into the tracks, we start with Let It Go. Tone, that intro riff is awesome, baby. Oh, yeah. This song right here is a perfect album opener. Uh, Let's you know basically right out the gate what this band is, is about and what you're about to get into with this record. It's a great riff. The composition's a little interesting. Uh, it's not your typical structure, which I, I thought was pretty cool, too. Um, it's got some cool, like, I love how it builds vocals and music as it gets up into the chorus, right? It's got two bridges, which is different. I can't think of any other song that off the top of my head with two bridges. I do like how it changes up the verse after the solo. And, you know, I haven't listened to this record in a really long time until you guys approached me about it. Um, But listening to the record, I come to realize that Pete Willis is kind of like a mix of Angus Young and Ace Fraley. He's very kind of bluesy, kind of choppy. He gets the choppiness like from Angus, you know, very sloppalicious. I actually found myself kind of appreciating Pete's playing uh, more after listening to this record. Yeah, great song right out the gate.
And I know Steven's not a lyrics guy, but I'm going to tell you two things about the lyrics that uh, I realized. One, there's a line where he says, I need a woman, a woman to love, one good woman, and you got what I want, what I want. I could have swore instead of one good woman, he was saying Wonder Woman. My whole life, I thought he said <laughs> Wonder Woman. Right? Until the other day when I'm looking at lyrics, I'm like, he doesn't say Wonder Woman? I swear to God he says Wonder Woman. That's right? funny. And then he says, get ready for the big C. He doesn't say get ready for the big D. So is he talking about ejaculation? First of all, wasn't it ever odd to you that he never, ever mentions the golden lasso? So why would you think it's Wonder Woman? I don't know. (laughs) So originally this song was a song called When the Rain Falls. And so right from the get go, you see Mutt Lang's influence because they bought this song in and they stripped it down and changed the lyrics completely. I absolutely love this song right out of the gate. Like Tony said, I like the I like how it throttles up and down throughout the song. So it, it builds and it and it releases and then it comes down and it builds and it releases. And I love that. And I love the one part in the middle uh, where it kind of has that breakdown and the cool like phasing vocals where it's like cool woman, cool lights. I love that shit. It's one of my favorite songs. I dig this song and it's still in the set these days. I mean, they still play this live. Yeah, it's got that Bob Ezrin breakdown. Is Mm -hmm. that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's just so cool. So track number two, You Got Me Running Part One. I mean, another hit and run. (laughs) Uh, So did you notice that tone that it started with uh, King of the Nighttime World there? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They, they actually, there's a couple of songs in here that have uh, some Kiss reminiscent type tunes. But yeah, that, it's, it's still a great riff, though. I love it how it has that little harmony bit on there, too. And then I like the the moody riff that it drops into and then backs up into the to the great riff section before the vocals come in. I think it's cool. Great gang vocals in the chorus. And then probably one of the coolest parts about the song is when the music drops all the way off after the solo and then just explodes into the chorus again. Super cool.
yeah, Steve, and this song has a little gallop to it. I think it's Rick Allen that's kind of creating this gallop. Well, you know, it's funny that you use that word because I'm definitely going to use that word further down this album. There's a lot of galloping happening in this record, and I never realized how much until I revisited this record today. Another hit and run for me is just another solid track. I absolutely love it. I love on these first two tracks, really, I like how the dynamics of the music are really working. I like how they slow it down and quiet it down and then build it up and then it explodes. And and to me, it's just both tracks, uh, Let It Go and Another Hit and Run, are just so full of energy. You can't deny it. I mean, fantastic. So the third track, High and Dry Saturday Night, Tone, this is where I'm like, oh, my God, dude, Mutt is an absolute magician. Because Joe sounds so confident on this record compared to that shit pile first record we listened to. Because I'm like, what the hell happened? In basically a year and a half, Joe sounds amazing on this song. Yeah, he's gone kind of up and down. Obviously, much better than the first record. It's almost like a totally different dude. There is a song on here, a song or two, where he's he's kind of back into previous record type vocals. But Speaking of high and dry, it's another great opening riff, another great catchy call and response type chorus. It's a really ACDC sounding riff. It's a cool tune. I mean, we just had a one-two punch, and now here's number three. Three solid songs in a row. I don't know what else I can say about that.
so Stephen, awesome chorus here. It kind of shows you sometimes the chorus is less is more, right? You can just keep it simple. And as long as it's got a cool melody, it works. Yeah, I don't know what it is about this song, but I've always really loved this song. It's one of those songs where, like you said, Sonny, Joe's confidence is really coming through. And Joe talked a little bit about how their first interaction with Mutt, he really pushed Joe on this record. He loved everything that Tom Allen did with the first record, but they were just a different band then. And so, as we said many times, Mutt kind of dialed it up a notch with this album. The difference between, say, Tom Allen, who was a fantastic producer, and I will not say a bad word against him, but a totally different way of working, and, say, Mutt Lang, is it was the discipline. Tom was employed by the label to capture what we were, which was a teenage band, a young teenage rock band, capture the energy that they have, and let's see where it goes. With Mutt, it was a totally different kind of... Uh, discipline if you like you know he came in and he's like well i'm not just going to capture what you do and see if it's a bit better than the first record we're going to actually create this record and make sure that it is better than the first album and it's punchier and it's it's more mature it's more professional sounding it's more you know going to push your performance wise he's really really pushed us hard to the point where sometimes i'd be like going i can't do what you're asking me to do you know it's i'm trying to like get tom waits to sing like a you know, an opera singer or something. And it was just really hard for me to get my head around it a lot of the time. But eventually it started to sink in what he was doing. And he got performances out of everybody in the band that we wouldn't have got under our own steam. So yeah, it was it was almost like army discipline really. But I've I've said many a time that I'd much rather dislike the 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 making of a record if I can enjoy listening to it later than than have a really good time recording it but then wish we'd tried a little harder to make it better because we were having too much fun while we made it so it's again it swings and roundabouts we we were at that point in our career where we were still learning how to work through new songs we'd never played any of these songs ever before we recorded them in the studio so it was a totally different headspace to on through the night where we'd been playing those songs on stage all over the world, pretty much. Um, and we had to start all over again. Mutt Lang was a great captain. He was a great leader to take us. Uh, and we were just a bunch of young kids. You've got to remember, Rick Allen was still only 17 years old. I think I was 21. Everybody else was like 18 or 19. We were rudderless. We really were. Um, and he, he, gave us a, he gave us a direction, which is what we desperately needed. These first three tracks... They're amongst some of the albums that I look to for the first three tracks just being so powerful. I mean, I absolutely love these first three songs. And don't forget, Sonny, we did a Filthy 15 episode a while back, like two years ago or whatever. High and Dry was one of the Filthy 15. Yeah, for some strange reason. I don't know why. It's not that bad. No, we laughed about it then. Laughing about it now. It all comes down to drug and alcohol abuse, which... There were a thousand songs out at that same time that were way worse than this. So the next track, Bringing on the Heartbreaks of Tone, forget about that is the framework for every 80s power ballad after that. Forget about the great harmonizing guitar part. Mm. Have you heard Mariah Carey's shitty version? Um, yes. Thank you for bringing that back into my consciousness. Yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. Oh, that was so bad. Why? Just like when she did, uh, what do you call it? I want to know what love is. Why? Why? Don't do that. Leave that stuff alone. But 
like you said, great harmony guitar parts in this song. Uh, the buildup in the pre is insane. It's just so good. And the big vocal chorus. Now, I mean, they're, they're literally just repeating the same thing over and over, but they say it so many different ways, like four different ways throughout the chorus. And it just makes it just so good and so huge. Really well-written song. And I, again, I love the way everything drops out right before the the solo at the end there and he just starts screaming no and everything comes back in fantastic and they set it up right it, it started out with a one-two punch that was aggressive and then uh high and dry um a little bit slower tempo and then they they hit you with the with the power ballad and it, it's man four great songs in a row as far as i'm concerned so steven it's interesting and i don't know if this story is true but there's a story out there that joe couldn't sing the chorus and Coverdale happens to be next door doing some vocals. I'm assuming they were doing Saints and Sinners. And Joe said that whatever Coverdale was doing was 10 times harder than what Mutt was asking him to do. And a couple of days later, I guess he came back and knocked it out of the park. So I don't know if like Coverdale helped him with some stuff. I have no idea, but uh, supposedly there's a story out there. Well, there is a story out there. And let's hear it straight from Joe Elliott's mouth right now. For me personally, the hardest one was bringing on the heartbreak because Mutt had spotted probably way in front of us that that was the song on the album that was probably going to bring some attention to the band. You know, we had great rockers with things like Let It Go and and, and the title track and Hit and Run, songs that over the last 20 years have fleeted in and out of our set still. In fact, Let It Go still gets played all the time. But Bring On The Heartbreak, I think he recognized, with it being a ballad probably, that it would get airplay if it was deemed good enough. So he really put me through the ringer because it's all about the vocal. And I was just this young kid that just wanted to get on with it and get it done. And he's like, no, it's got to be better than that. And he pushed and pushed and pushed to the point where I kind of broke. And I said, I can't do this. And I just kind of threw my headphones down and had a, a hissy fit and pissed off out of the studio. And I went next door to uh, Battery 2 where Whitesnake were recording and uh, bumped into David Coverdale and had the misfortune of watching him do a take, do a, a vocal in one take and thought, well, I'm wasting my time here. But um, David was fantastic. He said, come in and, you know, me and John Lord sat around the piano and we discussed the, um, you know, the ins and outs of what it's like to be a singer. And he was explaining how he felt the same way when he first joined Deep Purple. And it's something that you rise above eventually and you just have to get through it. And that talk and a bottle of brandy (laughs) kind of sorted out my head. So the next next day I went in the studio with a totally much better attitude, I must say. And I said to Mo, I'm sorry about yesterday. Um, you know, let's go for it. And, in, you know, with, with kind of ironing out my head, which is what that little conversation with David and a, a bottle of Cavozier did, um, I went back in there with a much better positive attitude, if you like. Let me ask you this. Power ballad or not? I say yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I agree. I think it's a power ballad as well. Typically, I'm not a big ballads fan, but this song is one of the great ones, in my opinion. It's a really good power ballad, well-written song, just like uh, Tony said. Yeah. 
So next we have Switch 625, which tone, like a three-minute instrumental for a band that's really supposed to be known for the melody of the songs. I just, I, I don't understand. Well, you got to remember too. Yeah, I sat and was wondering, why is this here? Right? What, what, what was the point of putting this on this record? Now, you're, you're talking about a band that's known for their harmonies, but back then, were they? I don't think so right? Yeah. Nobody really know who they were at the time. I think it's a cool riff and everything. It's just way too long. If you're going to do it, cool. Like a minute long, you know, do like an Eddie Van Halen where it's like a minute, minute and a half and call it a day. It didn't need to be so drawn out. I mean, I get structurally, I get what they were doing, but it didn't need to be so damn long. Other than that, I mean, I think it's cool, but like, I don't turn it off if it comes on, but it's, it was unnecessary. And Steven, I know Joe wanted to do this like Layla Freebird thing. I wish Mutt would have won and there was just lyrics. Well, I think, would we feel the same if it wasn't called Switch 625 and it was just sort of part of bringing on the heartbreak? Would we feel the same way? Because you're right. He did really, he felt like Switch 625 was just a part of like Layla where the piano comes in. It's just an extension of the song. And I mean, to this day, they still play bringing on the heartbreak and switch six to five in the set together. So, you know, I think they basically consider it to be a part of bringing on the heartbreak. And I think that it's been embedded in most of the listeners' minds as many times as we've listened to this record. It almost would sound funky if bringing on the heartbreak ended without switch six to five at the end. I would think that it sounded a little bit funky. So I don't mind it so much. It reminds me, it's one of the few like long instrumentals that I kind of actually like the feel and the uh groove to it it's a lot like uh reminds me of like coast to coast by the scorpions i kind of like that one as well in terms of groove and stuff but to your point is it needed i don't know that's a good call actually uh, the scorpions yeah coast to coast i mean it's very sim- very similar it's a very simple kind of just riff and it's it's again a little repetitive and a mm-hmm. little probably long probably longer than it needed to be i just don't see how this is an extension of bringing on the heartbreak i, I don't i don't understand how that's related in any way shape or form but whatever it's cool all right so we flipped aside two and since we started with let it go another hit and run with a king of the nighttime world beginning figure we just do it again and call it you got me running do the same king of the nighttime world thing and just make the verses like let it go and basically you got the best of all three worlds tone yeah your thoughts (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's again it's it's very acdc in its simplicity and overall sound it's just very kind of i don't know even the vocals in the chorus are more subdued and lower not as high pitched harmony as as we're used to from def leppard so to me this doesn't even sound like def leppard that i'm used to uh, it's very much more acdc to me um not brian johnson acdc obviously but i don't know it's it's still a cool song i dig it it's got a cool little groove to it and all
And Stephen, you know me, I got major problem with producers that let singers sing during the solo. Just shut the fuck up. Unless you're going <laughs> to do some sort of transition, huh? Or good God or something that's in between the solo, you know, transition, just shut up. <laughs> I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if I noticed that, but uh, it just occurred to me that you got a producer working on this record whose last two albums were back in black and foreigner four. Holy shite. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I don't know, man. You got me running. I really like it a lot. It's one, not one of the songs I think of when I think about this record, but when I listen to it today, I'm like, you know, this is a good song. To me, this is one of the first songs on this record that has almost a sort of a pop hook in the course. It feels, and and I don't know how to get this, uh, what I'm hearing across, but it feels different. There's something that, that is a little bit, when the chord changes go in this course, it feels a little bit poppy and a little bit more hooky than some of the other stuff. I like this song. It's a, it's a good tune to me. I know exactly what you're saying. It's definitely more sing-songy. Um, it's a lot more accessible, I think, as far as the tempo. And again, the vocal range. It's not so super high-pitched that you can't sing it. It's right where everybody's probably fairly comfortable. Um, and it doesn't have the call and response that we've, we're used to now on this record. So I, I, that's probably part of what you're hearing. Yeah. So the next track, Lady Strange, tone, like if I sit down and I listen to 50 Def Leppard songs in a row, shut it off and go start working, this is the one I start humming. There is something about this chorus that gets in my ears and man does not get the fuck out. Yeah, uh, this one's actually one of my favorite songs on the record. Uh, another great riff, right? The chorus is simple and catchy. It's very much kind of like how it got me running is where it's, it's a lot more sing-songy than the first side of this record. It's just catchy. And then um, Pete's doing all those little cool guitar fills in the second verse, which I know you love those. Um, so that's probably catching your attention as well. The bridge vocals get a little bit weird. Uh, I don't know why he was over-enunciating. Taking love from you, you know what I mean? It, that part's a little weird for me, but outside of that, I really love this song.
Yeah, Stephen, there's a lot of dynamics, and Tone mentioned it. The earworms got me for sure. Well, I dig the harmony guitars at the beginning of the song, and then it just stops and that big riff kicks in. I absolutely love that. When it's isolated and quiet like that, and you just have that big fat riff happening, that's cool to me. And then we got to return to the conversation of the gallop because there's definitely a gallop uh, section right before the solo. And to me, that stands out, that whole gallop right before the solo section. Uh, This is another great song. So the eighth song on this album, On Through the Night. So when I bought the album, I bought the 84 remaster. So they must have remastered it to help with the sales after Pyromania was going nuts. And I got Me and My Wine on that album. To know that Me and My Wine had a chance to make the album, but this piece of shit made the album. The person who made this decision should be shot, Tony. <laughs> you said that like it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it. Uh, You know, it's funny. So now we're at a point where this is a song that I forgot was even on this record. It starts out cool. It's fine. Uh, And then that, then the chorus riff comes in and here we go back to a kiss song because it's that baseline sure sounds like easy as it seems to me, the whole feel of it. It's all bouncy and just got that weird little like disco groove. Almost the vocals get really high pitched and screechy in the vocals uh, in the verse. I don't know. This this one's a little weird for me. Odd instrumental break for the solo. It's like way too long. And the solo was just kind of meh for me on this one. The instrumental break after the solo is cool. Got a cool riff. But overall, this one, eh, you kind of lost me a little bit. It's not like a bad song. I wouldn't call it a piece of shit like you did. Uh, it's, not a ba- <laughs> it's, it's not a bad song, but it's definitely not one that I seek out ever.
The song on Through the Night, it was kind of a fashionable thing to have a song on your album that would previously be an album title. Notably, ACDC had a song called If You Want Blood on um, Highway to Hell that had been the title of their live album the year before. Um, and that's kind of just one of those things that was in our mind. We were working with Mutt Lang, who had produced that uh, said album, Highway to Hell, in the same studio, Battery Studios in Wilsdon in London. And he was just talking to us one day, and he said, there's no song on your first album called On Through the Night, is there? And we're like, no, no. He goes, it's a good title. And we had a bit of music knocking around that needed a chorus, and all of a sudden we started singing over the top of it. It's like, there you go. We've got a chorus for this song. It was literally that simple. Stephen, I just don't understand that if Mutt knows me and my wine is there, why not put that on the album instead? I don't hate it like you do. I like the gallop feel on this song. There's another gallop to this song. But then the chord changes, which another it's another hooky chord change to me. And I like the course of this song. So I don't hate it like you do. I understand some of the parts that you don't like as much. And I'm certainly not comparing this to a song like Me and My Wine because I really like Me and My Wine. That's about what I can say about this uh, this particular song. So the second and last song on the album, Mirror, Mirror, Look Into My Eyes, Tone, it's the stuff that Rick Allen's doing with the drum accents. That's what gets me. Yeah, so after we dipped on On Through the Night, now you got me again because I love this song. This is one of my favorite songs on this record. Uh, I've always loved that riff. I like the plotting feel of it, the call and response chorus, the harmony guitar solos with the musical breaks. Man, I don't know. I've, I've always dug this one. I kinda, I, I've always kind of wanted to do a cover of it too, but we'll see what happens there because you know we don't really do much of that. But And then they do it again where they drop off before coming back in full volume for the final repeating chorus. This is a cool tune. This is a cool tune. I love this one.
And Stephen, talking about covers, man, Icarus Witch does an awesome version of this. Yeah, they stay fairly true to the original. I think Rick Allen and uh, Rick Savage are really the heroes in this particular song. I love that slow pounding groove. It's just really simplistic, but proves the point. And this song is a little bit, has a little bit of a weird feel to it. To me, this song is a little bit, uh, which one's not like the others? This song is that song for me on this record. I think it's just the weird um, uh, sort of Eastern Indian feel to some of the guitars in the beginning maybe there's a a sitar or something underneath that's recorded i don't know it just has a little bit of a different feel for me but i like this song nonetheless and then the last song no 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 this is not gene simmons no 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 but tone tell me why all songs called no 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 have to be fast because saying it slowly would be stupid (laughs) (laughs) i don't know let's try let's try no no, no. Okay, that doesn't oh, work. Lord okay, you're Jesus. Right. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> that was that was. Edit her out. <laughs> Jesus, that was bad. <laughs> Easy there, Tom Hanks. <laughs> Simmer down now. You say okay. So now uh, here's another song where I forgot it was on the record. Honestly, when I think of this record, I never ever ever think of No 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 or On Through the Night. That's the only two songs that when I looked at it, I was like, oh, snap, I forgot about this one, to the point where it was almost listening to a new song. It's nice and fast, which I liked. It's, it's the most aggressive song on the record, which is interesting, which is a good thing to do at the end. The start-stop verse is cool. The pre-chorus, though, tell me it doesn't sound like fits like a glove. It definitely does. The chorus is a bit of a throwaway, though. Like, seriously, wh- what is the chorus? Bet you can't sing it. Yeah, I, I had totally forgotten about it. The ending with the no, 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 that, that part's pretty neat, but eh. It's meh for me. Yeah, and Stephen, once again, the pace is really getting driven by Rick Allen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's moving, right? To me, if you're going to end an album, this is the way to end it uh, with an upbeat song like that. I hate albums that just kind of end with a thud. I don't hate No, 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 but I understand what Tony's saying. I think it's because the first half of this record is so freaking strong that some of the other stuff, although I like You Got Me Running, Lady Strange, On Through the Nightmare Mirror. I like all that stuff, but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't hold a candle to let it go. Another hit and run, bringing on the heartbreak, uh, high and dry. It's just so freaking strong. This album as a whole, to me, is just literally, it's sequenced perfectly. It flows so well from start to finish. I like No, No, No. 46 screams at the end of No, No, No is a little <laughs> bit much, but, but, you know, it's all good. Yeah, they have a tendency of doing those really long kind of computer-generated type endings, though, right? 46 times. It's crazy. You counted? Uh, well, it, it lists it somewhere. It, it says 46. That high. I, oh, yeah. that's right. 17 is the max. 20. 20. Give me the 20. As long as I had my shoes off, 20. But yeah, 46. If you've got one that fades out, that's a later, uh, probably the remastered copy uh, where they faded it out versus let it go for 46 times.
All right, so that's the end of the album. Tone, I want to get your top two, bottom two. I'll share mine first. Bottom two were easy. Switch six to five doesn't need to be there. And on through the night should have never been a song, period. The top two was hard because there was three that I absolutely love on this song, or on this album, but I went with Let It Go and Lady Strange. Tone, how about you? Okay, so I didn't do two, so I'm going to give you three. So bottom three favorites. Yeah, I don't give a shit. I don't play with rules. You can fire me. Uh, least favorites, No, 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 On Through the Night and Switch 625. Not that they're bad. I don't I don't dislike any of the songs on this record, but they're just not, like Steven said, they're not the same caliber as the stuff that's on that first side of the record. It's just, they're just not. Uh, favorites, Let It Go, Mirror, Mirror, Bring It On the Heartbreak, Lady Strange. I mean, I couldn't pick less than four because those four are just too good for me. Wow, and High and Dry didn't make it in the top four? Wow. Steven, how about you? <laughs> yeah, this is a tough one. My top two, I'm just going to pick Let It Go and High and Dry are my top there you two. Go. <laughs> uh, because I can't deny High and Dry. And uh, it's just, yeah, I like it too much. My bottom two, it, it's a little bit of a cop out to say Switch 625. So I'm, I don't know if I'm going to say that. I guess my top, my bottom two, man, I don't know. <laughs> this is really tough. You guys are going to crease by me. All right. My bottom two are bringing on the heartbreak because I don't like ballads. <laughs> and uh, mm, no, 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 I guess probably be my bottom two. But as Tony said, even my bottom two are really not songs that I dislike. I like I like the whole thing. The whole thing is great for me. Uh, this is just a, a really, really good solid record. This is not my favorite. Def Leppard record. It's probably number two, though. But, you know, I think when people say that this is their best record and Hysteria is too polished, I think, honestly, I kind of think you're just trying to appear cooler than you really are. I think that's exactly it. I'll tell you, you know what, what I mean. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I guarantee you, it's exactly that. I was thinking about that the other day. Like, my best recollection when these albums were out, let it, uh, when high and dry and pyromania were out, nobody was saying high and dry is the best record ever. Nobody was ever saying that. I think that it's aged really well, but I think that a lot of like the hardcore rockers and, uh, just people that we all know in general, the, the rock nerds, I think that it's cool to say that you like high and dry versus a pyromania, let's say. Uh, and I get it. I understand. And for me, I'll be honest. I like high and dry much better today than I did when I first discovered it back in, uh, the eighties. Uh, and it's not that I didn't like it back then. It's just aged really well for me. And so I kind of get it, but I think you dead hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, I agree with you. It's aged really well. I do like it more now than I did before. It's a great record. Let's just, I'm just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, for me, six out of 10 songs are great, and this wouldn't make my top three in Def Leppard. So hmm. people are trying to be ultra cool about how great this record is. I think there's six great songs, but it wouldn't make my top three. I think it's a good solid rock record. All right. So we know we like connecting things to Kiss. You wanted the best, and you got the best. The hottest band. It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. 
So in history at this point, we're four months away from releasing that shit pile called The Music The Elder. We can't get away from this fucking record. Great record. And they're still finishing up the recordings. For some reason, they still can't get it right. And uh, I'm not in love with any of those songs. So we're going to go with a cover. So here is Andreas Novak on vocals, Danielle Flores on drums and keyboards, John Nyman on guitar and bass from a Swedish band called Mind's Eye. They're like a progressive metal band, got eight full-length albums. But this is from 2008's Lick It Up, a millennium tribute to Kiss. Check out their version of The Oath, and maybe you will hear some slight changes.
so that's John Nyman Y&T John Nyman? No. Oh, different okay. guy. Okay. Different John Nyman? Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah, because that was going to be my question, too. I'm like, well, how did he get mixed up with these Swedes? But yeah. okay, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> Although he looks Swede, but I don't think he, does. he is. I don't know. I'll ask him. <laughs> he's, he's not unless he was born here because he doesn't have an accent. So your thoughts on the song? Go ahead, Stephen. This is one of the very few songs that I actually like off of uh, The Elder. Uh, and I think they do a good cover. It's a good rocking cover. Yeah, I noticed some of the changes, especially in the solo section and stuff, where it harkens back to uh, another Kiss classic in my eyes. But uh, yeah, I, I dug it. I thought it was all right. Yeah, I mean, it, it was certainly cool. It is one of the better songs on uh, music from the elder. I think I is an extremely overrated song and I don't understand anybody liking that song as much as they pretend to be. But anyways, uh, <laughs> this, this was a good version. <laughs> this was a good version. Yeah. I understand why people like I much more. Yeah. Because have you heard the rest of the shit on this album? I have. I sounds like it's the next coming of uh, the Who's classic. I don't know. I, I is a is a good song compared to the rest of the shit on the record. No, I is goofy as shit. That, that song is so fucking goofy. You got Elvis Stanley in there. You got all kinds of ridiculousness. No, it's uh, to me that's this super overrated. But anyways, um, these guys doing the oath. Yeah, yeah. Sonny tried to trick us up on the solo. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure why they decided to switch to a million to one in the solo, but I noticed it right away as soon as it as soon as it came on because I was starting to lose consciousness as I was listening. But uh, <laughs> but once that came up, I was like, wait a minute, what is this? Uh, but it was pretty cool. It was it was pretty a uh, smart way to to change things up a little bit. Yeah, that album. You know, there's the kiss tards out there that, uh, oh, the elders, the best. Come on, no, dude. It's I'm not sorry. It's not, it's not the best. It's not even close to being the best, but see, I, for me, ugh, I keep saying I, but, um, no, for me, the, the music from the elder was one of the first kiss records that I got. I got destroyer. And then actually music from the elder might've been my second record. So I actually really liked the record probably just because I programmed myself to like it because I thought that I had to like everything that kiss put out back then, because it was literally a brand new band to me when I first heard it. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I don't really mind that record at all. There's some stupid shit on there too. Yeah, of course. But like I, but, um, it's not, it's not that bad. There's definitely worse kiss records in my opinion. God, really? Like what? Monster. Monster. <laughs> Monster. Horrible I, record. I like monster better than, uh, than, uh, fricking the elder. No bumpkin. I like monster. <laughs> I like monster and I like Sonic, uh, boom better. Both of them. Sonic poop. Yeah. That one's not as bad, but that's interesting that you say you're kind of programmed. That might be the same thing for me too. I like asylum and animalize and crazy mm -hmm. nights, but people call that sometimes fast kiss. Right. But mm. I'm programmed to like fast kiss. Cause that's the kind of stuff I was listening to. So my question always is if it didn't say kiss and it was just another band, you would love this. Right. Yeah. Why, why do you have to say it like that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I, and I love those three records too. It's funny because I was just listening to Crazy Nights um, the other day and I was like, why do people shit on this record so much? There's a lot of really good shit. I mean, granted, I understand the production's kind of thin and it's very heavily keyboardy and whatever, but dude, a good song's a good song. <sighs> I don't know. Why does it have to be in the context of, oh, it's a good record, but not a good Kiss record? I, I don't understand that. Do you like it? Then shut up and listen to it. Yeah, that's that seems to be the uh, case with a lot of records these days. I see that quote more and more. This is a good record, but it's not a good insert band name record. 
I see that more and more, especially like, okay, lately with uh, the new giant record. This is a great record. It's not a giant record, though. (laughs) I'm like, like, okay, that's just stupid shit. Like, I mean, and I'm guilty of it before because I've said it before, too. Like, so, I mean, I I do get it to a point, but it just seems to be popping up more and more with with rock nerds lately. I know why it pops up, because your favorite sushi place, you don't want them to start making burritos. I get it, right? You went there for a thing, and you don't want ACDC sounding like Lady Gaga someday. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of get used to whenever you kind of stepped in and what that sound was going to be. I'll tell you, like the first six Kiss albums, it took me a minute to get used to those because I started to fast Kiss. So I'm like, this stuff is hella slow, right? So it, it took me a while. It, it was a live one and two that actually kind of got me going a little bit. And the production is so vastly different because those records date back to a serious, like, technical difference, right? You can definitely hear the difference in technology. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, there's nothing wrong with a sushi burrito, man. <laughs> it's not good, dude. I had one in Vegas. It's not good. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Uh, you went so, to a bad place. That's so gross. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can get sushi on the boat and combine it with a burrito on the boat, so you can have your sushi burrito. (laughs) All right. Well, this has been fun. Listen, this is definitely, to me, these first three Def Leppard records are what I would consider easy to review. I think although they may have some uh, places where they're a little weak, I think overall they're going to be strong. It's it's the later Def Leppard shit that's going to be a little bit of a challenge in certain places. Uh, but High and Dry is not one of those challenges for me. This record, uh, revisiting this record and going track by track, uh, this may actually be close to a Desert Island record for me because there's really no skippers on the record for me. There are some definite lesser quality songs on the record, but there's no skippers for me on this record. Yeah, I, yeah, agree. I, I don't know about that. I skip two, five, six, eight, ten. Two? You skip another hit and run? Every once in a while, yeah. Wow. It's not, it's not one of my favorites. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I definitely don't feel that way. And five, I wouldn't even count. What What were the other ones? Two, five, what? Uh, eight and ten. Eight and ten. Is that what you said? And six. Oh, and you don't uh, care that much for You Got Me Running. Well, they're the same song twice. Uh, it doesn't matter. No, I don't feel that way <laughs> at all. Tony, what about you? I don't mind this record at all. There's it, it. Well, like we discussed, there's so many strong songs on this record. Yeah. And then there's a couple that are, are weaker. They're lesser songs, right? But I don't think there's any duds at all on this right. record. So I, I wouldn't consider it a desert island necessarily, but I also don't consider it as bad as Sonny does. Yeah. So I, I love the record overall. I was happy when you guys picked me for this one because I have no problem with this record at all. Although I guess maybe... It's it, it'd be a good thing to get a record that I hate. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that those always have the most interesting conversations for sure. Oh, for sure. Can't wait to hear slang. <laughs> that one. That's not even the, the, that's not even my Van Halen three of this bunch, but we'll get oh, there. Boy. We'll get there for sure. Anyway, uh, great review, Tony. Once again, thanks for coming on. I think you can find everything about restrained at restrained.com. Uh, link will be in the show notes. I would say go support Restrain by picking up uh, the first three albums. That's how you can support that band or support them with some merch, 
whatever's out there at restrain.com. Tony, anything else you want to add? Uh, no, just uh, thank you guys again for having me on. It's always a blast talking to you guys about music. Thanks for featuring the new track. Uh, hopefully you guys liked it and um, hopefully we'll have it out soon. <laughs> yeah, it's a great new tune by Restrained and uh, we'll have a whole full week to talk rock and roll coming up on us. Sonny, anything you want to add before we get up out of here? Oh, 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 one more thing. Okay. One more thing in response to something Sonny said on a previous episode. Oh, shit. Here, um, you're welcome for introducing you to Paralandra. Ah, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome, you sarcastically, for introducing you to Hailstorm. Thank you. I said thank you about that, you're, too. You're, you're welcome for introducing you to Steelheart. Shall I continue? You're welcome. I don't know about the Steelheart one. I think I did uh, that one on my own. Nope. I bought the cassette. Curdy and I listened to it in the car on the way to the studio one day. Curdy giggled his ass off, talking about he sounds like the chipmunks. I said, son, he's going to love it. I gave you the tape. The rest is history. Did I give you the tape back, or do I still have it? Uh, you probably still have it. You never gave it back. <laughs> <laughs> so, well thank you i, I could go you. on and on but. and i thank you all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> well tony has there been anything that sunny has turned you on to uh oh yeah of course oh, of yeah. course it's it's been back and forth always like i mean right. I, I would have no clue who jeff scott soto is if it wasn't for sunny all right you know there's there's been plenty all plenty, right. plenty plenty so there's yeah. give there's give and take of course there always has been yeah Just all giving right him shit, like always oh <laughs> perfect continue don't let me interrupt Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so for the listeners, thanks for listening. I will tell you that Mariah Carey's bringing on the heartbreak is really bad, but on through the night is worse. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and like always, Sonny is a total wrong. And anyway, we'll get around to it. Let's close this out with uh, a little me and my wine. Why not? I love it. We'll see you guys next week. See ya. Later. Deuces. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.